This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Iris Iris. Iris Iris approaches healing, spirituality, and magic through the lens of contemporary art and design. Their products are centered around the energetic vibrations of color, shape, and symbolism. Check out their bright, colorful products, such as their Prism Oracle Deck, Spell Tats, Temporary Tattoos for Manifestation, their book, Color, Form, and Magic, A Guide to Healing and Manifestation with Design, or the 2019 Chroma Calendar. Witchwave listeners can receive free domestic shipping by using offer code WITCH. You can find their colorful magic online at Iris Iris, that's spelled I-R-I-S, E-Y-R-I-S dot com or on Instagram at Iris Iris. Conjure some colorful magic with Iris Iris today. Today's episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Witch Baby Soap. Do you like to dwell in the shadows but stay squeaky clean? Then Witch Baby Soap is the soap for you. They make fabulous occult-themed body products like coffin-shaped bath balms, tarot card soap, and crystal-embedded body butters. Their recipes are made with magical intentions, and they're free of all of those nasty things like sulfates and parabens. And now you can get 15% off orders using offer code WITCHWAVE. That's WITCHWAVE, one word, on witchbabysoap.com. So get ready to wind down, lather up, and get some Witch Baby Soap products using offer code WITCHWAVE now. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. kick off this episode by talking about gender. I often speak about the archetype of the witch using feminine pronouns. And in fact, I have an entire book coming out which traces the relationship specifically between witches and women. It's called Waking the Witch, and it's available for pre-order now, as I've mentioned a few times. But as I say in the book and continue to say publicly, anyone of any gender can be a witch. I know many male witches, transgender witches, gender non-conforming and gender non-binary witches. The witch belongs to no one group or gender, and there is no gatekeeper to witchcraft. 
people are drawn to this path for so many varying reasons. And I believe this spiritual practice becomes more rich and more magical the more diverse it is. We need a whole host of different voices and perspectives if this practice is going to be an engine of compassion and change. I also like to remind people that even though it feels like the collective conversation around gender is very contemporary, the notion that gender is a spectrum is not, in fact, new. And we need only look back at various myths and deities throughout history to see that. The Norse trickster god Loki would sometimes present as female and even gave birth to a foal while in the form of a mare. The Greek deity Hermaphroditus was born the son of messenger god Hermes and love goddess Aphrodite. When the water nymph Salmasis fell in love with Hermaphroditus, their bodies merged together and formed one androgynous being. The Egyptian deity Hapi, spelled H-A-P-I, is a god of the Nile who brings flooding and thus fecundity to the land. He is depicted with breasts and a protruding fertile belly. There's also the image of the Rebus in alchemy, which is a two-headed king and queen sharing the same body and symbolizing the union of opposites, which is one of the great alchemical workings. The 19th century occultist Eliphes Lévy was no doubt inspired by such images of integration when he designed his drawing of Baphomet, a goat-headed, winged being with breasts and a phallic caduceus, which is the double-snaked staff of Hermes. Baphomet sits with their right arm raised and their left arm gesturing downwards, a similar pose to that seen on the magician card of the tarot and the whirling dervish dancers of Sufi mysticism. It's a pose that symbolizes balance and flow between opposing forces. Even more significantly, we now know that in some cultures, gender non-binary people have been traditionally considered to be especially sacred beings. In Hinduism, there is the concept of a third gender called Tritya Prakriti, which translates to third nature. Their participation in certain Hindu ceremonies is considered highly auspicious, and they are believed to have special powers. And in indigenous American tribes, there is the concept of two-spirit, which describes a divine group of people who cross or transcend the binary of male and female, and who hold a special ceremonial role. In the modern witchcraft context, transgender and gender nonconforming folks are not only vital members of our community, they are helping to expand ideas about who witches are and why we matter. 
LGBTQ activism and magical ritual is a key component of the work and workings that are being done now. And this must continue if we are going to use our powers of imagination and love to manifest a kinder, more potent, more sustainable way of being. My guest today, Ilva Mara Rejeshevsky, is one of those leaders. They are a witch, an educator, and an all-around force for good who devotes much of their work to bringing light and healing to oppressed people and helping those folks tap into their own magic. This conversation is such an important, and for me at least, an enlightening one. But before we get to that, first let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches. Morgan writes, I am a rediscovered witch. A lot of my new magic is garden-based. I grow my own herbs, spices, and vegetables, and being in my garden fuels a lot of my magic and energy. My problem is I live in northern Illinois, where it is already only 20 degrees, so I suddenly feel totally depleted of magical energy. Meditation, baths, oils, and visualizations haven't helped at all. Even my tarot cards seem empty to me. I feel like part of myself is missing suddenly. Since I have only recently discovered this part of myself, I don't have other witches I can really talk to about the ebb and flow of energy. Am I going crazy? Am I the only one who goes through this? Do you have any advice on healing or restoring energy? Hi, Morgan. First of all, welcome back to the fold. I'm so glad you are rediscovering your witchcraft. That's really wonderful to read. Now, let me reassure you, you are not going crazy. Even after practicing magic for most of my life, That ebb and flow you describe still happens for me. That's because the operative word here is practice. Magic is a practice, like any other practice, such as studying music or doing exercise or meditating. And like those practices, it's going to go through all sorts of energetic phases. There are times in my life when it feels like everything is flowing and the entire universe is humming with enchantment and sending me messages around every corner and it feels like I'm just gliding in the right direction. Those times are so precious, but they are not constant. There are other times when doing magic feels like trudging through the energetic version of molasses. This can be because I'm tired or stressed out or depressed or distracted, or for whatever reason, my spells feel like they're resisting me somehow. This is totally normal. And as with any cycle, sometimes it simply has to run its course. And I need to accept that this is where I'm at with my magic and trust that I'll get back in the flow with it eventually. That said, there are some tried-and-true methods that can sometimes help get me out of my magical rut. 
The first is to work with the seasons and the lunar phases, which I'm doing all the time anyhow, but to really, really focus on the messages that they are here to teach us. So right now, here in the Northern Hemisphere, we're approaching winter. It's a time just after the harvest, when nights are long, and days are colder, and trees are bare, and there's not much fruit or flower to speak of. And that is why there are so many festivals of light that happen cross-culturally throughout this time of year. Diwali, Hanukkah, Christmas, and winter solstice are just a few of them. And we'll be talking much more about winter solstice specifically in the next episode. But these holidays are all there for a reason. These are celebrations that are meant to make us feel warm and cozy and candle lit. So if there's any sort of fire magic or candle magic that you're attracted to doing, I really recommend that right now. You also mentioned spices and gardening, and regardless of what holidays you celebrate, cinnamon and ginger and cloves are in a lot of holiday foods because they warm up our bodies and raise our energy, not to mention help fight off all kinds of infections. Same with bringing any sort of greenery or winter florals inside your home to help you still feel in touch with nature. The Christmas tree predates Christianity and is a pagan symbol of life, nature, and resilience. So whether or not you celebrate Christmas doesn't matter. You can still bring in some beautiful evergreens into your home right now. Now, I mentioned lunar phases as well, and we've talked about this on the podcast before. But if I were you, I'd pay extra attention to the moon because many of us witches believe that when the moon is waning, our energy feels a bit lower and our work tends to be more about self-care and turning inward. When the moon is waxing, however, our energy is building and we can let some of it out to either help manifest things or let go of things that are no longer serving us. But also remember that the moon is a reminder that we all wax and wane in our own lives. So if raising energy is simply feeling too difficult for you right now, even after you try some of these suggestions, you may want to just honor the quiet and the dark and treat yourself with as much soft gentleness as you can. We all need to recharge our batteries, especially around this time of year. Take good care of yourself and good luck. Now, on to my guest. Ilvamara Rejashevsky runs the Cunning Crow Apothecary and Seattle's School of Traditional Magic. They are also a licensed acupuncturist, clinical herbalist, and a professional witch with a specific focus on bringing a voice to the role of witch as healer and the use of magic as service and anti-oppression activism. They lead rituals and healing sessions and teach traditional nature-based witchcraft both online and in person. 
Ilvamara's work has been featured in Vice, Bust Magazine, The Stranger, and many other places, and it was my honor to get to speak with them about gender, healing, the importance of connecting with one's ancestors, and so much more when they joined me from Seattle via Skype. Ilva Mara Rejashevsky, welcome to The Witch Wave. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. And the first question I'm going to ask you is, did I pronounce your name correctly just then? <laughs> yeah, you did. My full name is Ilva Droma Marjanya Rejashevsky, but I usually go by Ilva Mara because it's <laughs> it feels more inviting. <laughs> it's such a beautiful name. And am I correct that that comes from Polish and Eastern European roots? Yeah. So my last name, Rydzeszewski, is Polish, and it means one who gives good counsel from the land of peace. But my first and middle name I've chosen, I'm transgendered, non-binary, and trans femme. And when I changed my name, I decided to select something that was like a uniting of my family's lineages. I'm Balkan Romani on my mom's side, and I'm Slavic Polish on my dad's side. So Ilvadroma is a mashup between an old Swedish name, actually, and an old Romani word, meaning the word. So Ilva is noble she-wolf, and Vadroma or Droma is the, the word or, or knowledge, as far as I can best that. That is gorgeous. And it makes me think of the fact that a lot of folks, when they're embracing their witch side or their witch identity, a lot of people take on a magical name. Mm. So there's this beautiful tradition of self-naming in the witchcraft community in general, though sometimes people choose not to tell people that other name. Sometimes people are very public with it. But the power of naming oneself, I think, is so, so magical. And I wonder what that process was like for you. <laughs> That's a really big and beautiful question. And I think Part of the naming process for me was about reclaiming inherent magic and reclaiming the magic of my ancestry as being somebody who's both colonized and embodying of the colonizer. And so when I was thinking about the names I was choosing for myself, I wanted them to also embody the character that I hope to aspire to embody myself while also claiming different aspects of my family's history. So that was part of the magical process of it. And then the other part of it, too, was as a transgendered person, I didn't want to continue to exist in a name that tied me into an identity I was forced to embody. So I chose to also decolonize my own tongue and give my name a really difficult uh, <laughs> pronunciation for folks and myself, because I wanted to remember every time I said it, I wanted to remember the pajormas. I wanted to remember my Romani grandmother and my Romani great-grandparents. And I wanted to have inside of me the knowledge that there is so much power in the name and that that power comes also from our lineages. So 
I think it was a it was definitely magically supported <laughs> and influenced. That's completely beautiful, and I love the concept of decolonizing the tongue. That really moves me, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you mean when you use that phraseology. Yeah, you know, I think for myself as a white raised, white passing, mixed Romani person, my use of the phrase decolonizing, particularly decolonizing my tongue, comes from this place of never having learnt my grandmother's Romani name. And it comes from her mom and dad never teaching them language or culture because what I would say, like their need or their having been forced to assimilate into Western culture when they migrated, immigrated to the United States, the colonized states. So when I think about decolonization of my tongue, I think about like the way that the Western colonizing world first strips away the language from those they seek to overpower um, and whose resources they seek to claim for themselves. They take away their names. They take away their language. We take away their land. We take away their culture. And for me as a witch and a witch who's both Slavic and Romani in a mixed immigrant household, I was raised American. You know, I was raised outside of my culture and my cultural context. And so I was raised white. And the process of trying to reconnect to my ancestral magic and lineage has to first untie that first knot, you know, or unsever that first bondage cast out by colonization, which is the stealing of language. Mm, That's so powerful. And there's so much more I want to talk to you about that. But first, let's take a step back, because I got so excited by the prospect of talking about your name that (laughs) I didn't actually get to properly frame up what exactly you do. You, on your website, call yourself a witch, a healer, a writer, a teacher. You also run the Cunning Crow Apothecary in Seattle, as well as the Crow Song Healing Arts School of Traditional Magic. There's so much there that I want to ask you about, too. And let's start with the identity of being a witch, since we're talking about identity. When did you realize that you are indeed a witch? Oh my gosh, I think that's a, <laughs> I think that's a lifelong process. But it came to me early on. My grandmother was always a very reluctant psychic in our community and in our house. And I grew up in a devotional home. So I grew up with an immigrant father from Poland who was very Catholic. And I grew up with my grandmother, my mom, not so much, but her mom was very devout in her Catholicism. And she prayed constantly. And she would, when we were sick, she would lay hands and pray prayers to St. Sarah on our bodies. And who is St. Sarah? St. Sarah is a canonization of a Romani slave woman who is thought to be one of the handmaidens of one of the Marys. Uh, one of the Holy Marys in the Catholic Church. And mm. she's also sacred to the Romani diaspora. Her Romani name is Serai Kali and represents a hope, I think, and represents a unity in the diaspora and a link back to original culture and spirituality. It's not something I was raised with, but it's something over the years I've 
tried to study and learn more about her influence, but she's always been a presence in the home. Mm-hmm. And so my grandmother would, would pray to her or to the Virgin Mary or to St. Anne or to Jesus, <laughs> depending on what was wrong. <laughs> and so I grew up in that kind of devotional house. And I found that to be very magical. And I fell in love with ritual and prayer. And so my earliest memories are of just having knowings as a child and not quite knowing what to do about it and and never really being instructed to develop that skill and never really being dissuaded either until I really started taking it seriously around 12 years old and then started studying more and more around magical traditions. And I left the church and then I started an apprenticeship when I was 15 with a a folk healer, a Christian mystic healer named Jackie McClowski, who passed away a few years ago and just started studying more about hands-on healing and working with herbs and crystals and dream work, tarot, intuitive readings. So when you started I don't know if moving away from Christianity is the right way to phrase it. And please correct me if you have a different way of thinking about it. But you said you did leave the church and and you started getting engaged in these different sets of magical practices. Was there any tension for you in your family or within yourself? Or was everybody okay with the fact that you were evolving into another kind of mystical life? Gosh, I think around that same time, so much other stuff happened. (laughs) As Mm -hmm. practitioners of the craft understand that the witch uh, we seek to disrupt, whether we do it intentionally or not, we're always disrupting whatever would stand in the way from authentic connection and whatever exists inside of us or around us that perpetuates supremacist culture. And so I think as I started to explore witchcraft, I started already to explore my own sexuality and gender expression. So I think with the resurrection of the witch through my body, I also started to divest from certain cultural norms around gender and sexuality. And I think most of the conversations I'd have with my family early on in my my work, and I took it very seriously as a 12 year old, you know, I'm, I'm a Virgo son in the eighth house. And I'm like, no, this is this is my life. It was my research. You know, I had journals full and full and full of, of notes I'd taken in, from books. And, and so my family just sort of didn't pay much mind. I don't think they quite understood it. But as I started to mature and started to understand my relationship with life as a magical person, and started to also dive into our ancestry and understanding that we come from deeply spiritual cultures that we were not raised in, I think they started to take it a little bit more seriously. And I think it kind of freaked them out, honestly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My mom would ask me to read her tarot cards often, and I did. And I used to act as psychic development with my sister unwillingly. I'd psychically like send her thoughts or read her energy or read her mind. And I think as a teenage witch, or as even like a burgeoning witch, you know, when everything is so new, it's easier to I think, cross certain boundaries because you don't know any better. <laughs> so I was definitely notorious. And after a certain point, people were like, you need to quit. So. Oh, and you refused to do so? Or did you have a period of trying to hide or diminish this side of you at all? No, I'm also very ornery. So I think, <laughs> I think that if I'm told not to do something, I'm always curious as to why. 
And so even if it's a good reason, even if it's like, okay, don't do this for a good reason. I was, especially at that age, uh, very interested in empirical data. So I wanted to try things on and I wanted to try things out and have direct experience. And most of what I learned about the craft and most of what I teach about the craft, I learned in that manner. So I kept going. And because magic for me is so intrinsically linked to uh, liberation work and now over the years, most recently, more linked to anti-supremacy work, it feels like anytime I try to hide or shrink back or to conform to a certain expression, it, it just doesn't work for me. It doesn't work in my magic. It doesn't work in my body. It doesn't work in my community. Mm-hmm. And I would argue it probably doesn't really work for anybody to pretend to be something that we're not. I mean, ultimately, even if it seems successful, there has to be, in my opinion, some corrosive element or some way in which you're paying for it. Exactly. Yeah. And I think also in regards to the magic that we make or that we co-create or however you want to language that, if we practice something that isn't ours, if we practice something that isn't of our body or of our culture or even of our inspiration if we effort towards an expression of magic that's more akin to somebody else's expression it doesn't work as well either so i think for some reason i I keep thinking about this thought like magic cast in desperation will yield desperate results like the, the claiming or the practicing or the casting of inauthentic to self magic is also going to yield ineffectual results. Mm. This brings up for me something that I'm battling within my own head right now and, and perhaps my own heart too, which is this idea of tradition and the idea of trying to go back to our roots mm-hmm. and the idea of certainly not wanting to appropriate anyone else's magic while at the same time deeply believing that magic is fluid and syncretic and that culture influences itself and different parts of culture hybridize and become new forms of magic. So on the one hand, and I'm just speaking personally, and I'd love to hear your point of view on this, but on the one hand, I absolutely understand the idea that, you know, I'll use myself for an example. I was raised Jewish. I'm a practicing pagan. And some might say that, therefore, I can only do magic that's rooted in Central and Eastern Europe, right? On the other hand, I also have this feeling that magic is deeply rooted in nature overall and that nature belongs to everybody and that we live in systems that cross-pollinate and that grow when we learn from each other. So I I wonder how you reconcile some of that or or what you're thinking about with these different questions these days. Mm, Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. I'm just going to kind of collect myself around it. <laughs> sure, I know. It's a really big topic, and, and it's certainly one I don't have all the answers for myself. I want to say something that my friend, my dear friend, Dylan Wilder says, and they say that we will never have answers. Supremacy wants us to have answers, right? So I think when I want to answer this question, I want to come to it from a place of generosity and relating to the question and I also want to come from it as, as a steward of magic, as a witch would do. And I also want to talk about the question from a place of social justice analysis. 
uh, if I can. Please. Okay. So one of the things I think about as somebody who also believes that magic is of the earth, and I think that that's the universal principle, right? Magic is, is elemental. It's nurtured by the spirits of land and place, and it's nurtured in the spirit of those folks who work with magic. And that our relationship with magic is nurtured also as we foster a relationship with nature, whether that's tending to land, whether that's living in a big city and uh, looking to the sky and appreciating the grass as it grows through the cracks or the trees and the sidewalks or the birds. So I think in that regard, yes, magic is a unifying force. It's universal. I also think that magic is a faithless devotion because it exists in the heart of the practitioner. And so I think magic finds its root in all faiths where the intentions are earnest. And I think magic also has no affinity for morality. And I think the affinity of magic is for whatever exists in the heart of the practitioner. In that regard, yeah, magic is universal. And then I think about um, how we as white people, white presenting, white passing people. And you and I both come from diasporatic lineages, right? So we all have our own history of colonization. And we also have inside of our body intergenerational trauma as a result of colonization. And yet we're still white passing. And yet we still exist within an ethnic minority that has very recently been persecuted in our common cultures. Yet in observing us, we exert white passing privilege. And so we are a source of perpetuating white supremacy. And so then I think about how we as white people actually even gain access to uh, cultures that aren't our own, right? The practices and the customs and the belief systems. And so I think because of our, I'll say it this way, our ill-gotten access and privilege to access other people's cultures besides our own. I think it's important that when we are called to express our magic or to explore our craft, um, and it leads us to somebody else's door, that we pause and we seek out permissions and we listen and we ask our ancestors if this is where we should be or if this is where we have been taken so that we can find where we're supposed to be. I think sometimes the spirits of land and place, particularly for me as a colonizer, when I moved to occupied Duwamish and Coast Salish land in what's now Seattle, um, when I got here, the spirits were very loud, you know, and I'm also very loud. And so I would pray very hard and, and they would answer me. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I've got to somehow find a way to be in relationship with the spiritual practices of, of the people of this land. And then I started to think about it more critically over the years and started to realize that the spirits will answer us when we are earnest in our cry and in our prayer. And just because a, an indigenous spirit or spirits of, a, of colonized land answer our prayers doesn't mean that, that they are the source of the answer or doesn't mean that they are the place where we rest. I feel like they intercede on our behalf. The grandmothers of the Pacific Northwest, the grandmother spirits are like, oh, I'll take you to meet your own babas, <laughs> right? We're not your granny, and, but I know where to find your granny. And so I think that because we as white passing people and particularly white colonizing people 
we have been so deeply colonized in our own bodies and our cultures have been so deeply colonized. And you and I have a different perspective, I think, and a different analysis because of our cultural heritage. But I think that we have somehow forgotten what it feels like to be home. And so when we feel an invitation, we we can sometimes accept it without analysis or like just because I've been invited into somebody's home doesn't mean I get to stay the night. You know, we are invited and we're guests and we can always be disinvited. And I think if we approach magic in that way, these are relationships that we're in relationship. We're in relationship with ourselves and our ancestors and the spirits and the land that we steward and, and even the land that we colonize and occupy. And all of these relationships, I think, well, they have multiple purposes, but one of the purposes of these relationships is to bring us home to ourselves. And ultimately, I think there has got to be a place on our altars for our ancestors, like them or not. And I think one of the common misconceptions of the modern witches movement, and I think it's quickly changing, but particularly for white people who are witches, is that we we have this false mythology that our lineages are dead. And many of them have been brought to the extinction point for sure. But when I think about Balkan witchcraft, the Vrach, they are thriving in small villages, but we don't have access to them because of our colonizing ways. So accessing our inherent magic and accessing our ancestral magic, I think for some people requires a lot of diligent, hard work. And that's, I think, sometimes daunting, but it just because it's not accessible doesn't mean it's not there. And I actually think that that's a great place for us to take a quick break, but we are absolutely going to come back to this because I want to know more about our ancestral roots and how we can connect to them. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Blessed Be Magic, a new witchly jewelry brand committed to reminding you of your magic by creating modern and subtle everyday talismans. Are you looking for witchy jewelry that you can wear everywhere? Their gorgeous and lightweight talisman cuffs for the modern witch are beautifully subtle and can be worn daily for all occasions, and they come in a variety of styles and metals. I particularly love their silver pentacle cuff, which is so elegant and is a great way to wear your magic in a manner that's a little bit more understated and intimate. I especially appreciate that these bracelets are adjustable so they can accommodate wrists of all sizes, including my little bird bones. I really dig these cuffs, and you will too. Order yours today at www.blessedbemagic, that's magic spelled with a C-K, dot com, and be sure to use code WITCH for 15% off your order. Blessed be. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Ilva Mara Rejashevsky. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do it every time because I want to decolonize my tongue too. Mm, good. <laughs> Great. So we were just speaking about how challenging it is for especially folks like myself and like yourself, who may come from spiritual lineages that we're not, we, we just don't necessarily have as much knowledge about. I mean, I certainly have 
some knowledge about my Jewish lineage, but when it comes to the more witch side of my lineage, you know, there are certainly stories. My grandma Trudy had healing hands, and there's certainly little elements of it, but when it comes to really connecting to the deities of the land of Central and Eastern Europe, things get a little challenging for myself, and I, I know I'm not the only one in that boat. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you did some of that research and how you were able to learn more about your own spiritual roots. Yeah, I think part of it is just like, (laughs) you just start looking and you start asking questions. And I feel blessed in that my relationships, my deep friendships are with folks who are also engaging this work. And a lot of the conversations I know how to have are because of the labor that has been spent on me by queer, trans, non-binary, Black, Brown, and Indigenous people of color and femmes. And also the work of speaking to folks who do hold privilege over me, even, and having those dialogues and trying to understand where we exist currently in the perpetuation of colonization and supremacy and how to track that in our bodies and asking questions and then seeing what opens and acknowledging where I have stolen people's culture and acknowledging where I have leaned into what was most available and looking at why it was available and how violent the availability is and and how accessing, say, Indigenous First Nations medicine for white people is so, quote, easy because we've stolen it, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. and we've analyzed it and we've made it this abstract concept that it was served to violate and perpetuate violence against First Nations folks. Yes, and we've commoditized it. I mean, you can buy, you know, sacred white smudge at Whole Foods Mm. right now. And I don't know if that comes from indigenous people or not in terms of who actually did the bundling of that specific Mm -hmm. sage. Yeah, and were the ceremonies respected? Was the ceremony of harvest actually respected? Gathering herbs is in itself a ceremony. And so Is that sage honored? And so we don't really know these things. So I started thinking about, well, what was I using? I used white sage. I used a frame drum. I used a rawhide rattle. And I made relationship with spirits. And I was taught these ways by by folks who said they had permissions. And I took that for granted. And when I started to look at what these tools were and what they represented and what they were trying to fill inside of me, I was able to start to ask different questions of my own ancestors. Like, how do we transform energy? How do we transmute? How do we clear space? How do I find and facilitate shifts of consciousness? How do we facilitate healing? And so once I knew the questions to ask, once my mind could conceive of being able to ask the questions, and once I started to realize I didn't have answers, and that that was okay, I started to look at my traditional practices. I mean, I started to look at my culture's traditions and there's very little that can be easily accessed because, you know, when we think about cultural medicine, it's medicine because it's of a culture, like you were raised in it. And there are certain things that you you learn and that you're taught as you grow through observing and being directed and instructed by people who have done it, who have been instructed by people who have done it. You know, it's an unbroken lineage. And I started thinking about 
the ways that my dad would make medicine and the ways that my grandma would make medicine and my dad's mom and my, my mom and my Nana. And I started to ask questions like, well, well, what is that about? And is that a cultural thing? And I started to look into the folk music of, you know, Slavic and Polish folk music. And then I started to do deep research into the Romani diaspora and tried to find records and discovered I'm the particular band of Romani that my grandmother is from or from the Balkans. So I started researching there and learning the names that they had for spirit. And I by no means know how to practice as a Polish Slavic mixed Romani witch. I just know how I do things. Mm -hmm. And when I stopped trying to do things the way other people would do them, I started to hear my own ancestors. And this is, I've been practicing for 25 years. And it's just been in the last maybe seven or eight years that I've started to really understand how my body responds to magic. I, this sounds really cliche, but I feel like, you know, you put that prayer on your altar and you ask your ancestors to show you what they used to do, or you ask your ancestors to invite you into their magic before it was stolen. And suddenly something opens up for you. You know, suddenly there's an email or a message or like an advertisement on Facebook that you click. And suddenly there's this little piece, this little more piece to the puzzle that you didn't have before. Yes, I call that following the trail of cosmic breadcrumbs. Like yeah. These little clues start making themselves known to you and you just kind of trust them and let them lead you to the next and the next and the next. Absolutely. And it's worth it. You know, it's absolutely worth it. And I think unless you have an actual invitation by someone else, by an elder in another culture, and unless you're willing to become family of that culture and that elder who has invited you in, I, I feel like it's just as soul fulfilling to take that energy and start to unpack the ways that we've perpetuated colonization and the silencing of our own ancestral ways. When I took a pilgrimage to Poland, you know, my father died a few years ago, four years ago or something. And I had planned a trip to Poland earlier that year. And I hadn't spoken to my father in like 21 years. And I found out he was dying and I went and I assisted him, my sister and I. And we didn't quite know what to do. But, you know, as I sang and my sister sang with me in Polish, the little songs that we knew, something changed in the energy and we understood how to take care of his body. Mm. Like we understood how we do things and the ancestors were there and, and he passed. And suddenly I was like, oh, my God, like this pilgrimage is not just for me. I've got to take my dad home. And he hadn't been to Poland since he had to flee in the 70s. So long story short is when I got to Poland and I was a small airport in Krakow and we got out of the plane onto the tarmac and I fell, like I, I buckled. I couldn't understand what was happening to my body, but I, I started crying and, and weeping because the air hit my lungs and suddenly something changed in my body. And that whole trip for almost three weeks, everywhere we went, I heard the grandmothers, I heard the spirits whispering and I couldn't understand them entirely but they taught me spells mm. and they taught me prayers and they taught me songs and they taught me herbal remedies and I brought those back with me and I've been working with them ever since you know granted I had the great privilege of being able to go to Poland 
to remember that, but it's inside of us. And I think if we take the time to listen and do the work around, and it's hard work, but if you think about the ways that we continue to harm other cultures through our soulful hungers by trying to meet needs that can only be met by undoing the damage we've already done, I think it's effort worth making. I mean, I think about what you said too about being Jewish and like, oh my gosh, one of the most mystical, magical practices is the Kabbalah. Yep. This is pre-colonization. How much magic exists inside of that practice, you know, that sorcery. Absolutely. The interesting thing about that, and, and I don't want to dwell too much on myself here, but when I was a kid, I was kind of repelled by the Kabbalah because I still associated it with Judaism. And there's a lot about Judaism that I love and still identify with. But I was trying to get outside of Judaism because there was so much about it that I found limiting. And so it was only much later in life that, you know, like I had to go away in order to start looping back. And even now I'm in my mid thirties where I'm getting more interested in Kabbalah. And, you know, that's the hero's journey, isn't it? If we're talking Joseph Campbell, it's this idea of going away so you can then reintegrate some things. So yeah, all of this is so interesting to me and there's so much else I want to talk to you about, but it's been giving me a lot of food for thought. And I'd certainly love to continue this conversation around decolonization with you and with other guests on the podcast as we move forward. We're going to take a quick break. And then I have so many other things that I want to dive into. So we'll be right back. You've heard me gush about Mithras candles many times before, and they love you guys so much that they're now offering free shipping if you use offer code WITCH at their website, MithrasCandle.com. You know, 2,000 years ago in labyrinthine underground temples across the Roman Empire, the first beeswax candles were burned in secret rituals to the god Mithras. Now you can experience some of this mystery for yourself with Mithras candles. They're handmade from the purest golden cappings beeswax, and with that natural, subtle honey and floral scent, Mithras candles are the perfect illumination for the mysteries of your life. So go to MithrasCandle.com, that's M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, Candle.com, and use offer code WITCH for free shipping today. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Ilva Mara Regishevsky. So I want to pivot a little bit mm -hmm. and talk not only about colonization of ethnicity and ancestry, but some of the problematic things that I've been seeing in terms of the, I'll call it, recent history of the modern witchcraft movement, because as much as we can certainly talk about magic in terms of traditions and being timeless, a lot of the context for the modern witchcraft movement has sprung out of Wicca, even though we don't necessarily all identify as Wiccans. It really gave us a lot of framework and language and rituals that, that I think a lot of people don't even realize came from Wicca. And when you're following the history of Wicca, 
And you get into everyone from Gerald Gardner and then a couple decades later into the American feminist witchcraft movement and people like Z. Budapest and Starhawk. We start to see some really problematic things emerge around gender essentialism and certainly when it comes to transgender folks and gender non-binary folks. Um, and first, let's identify the problem, which is there are still some people to this day who think you have to be a cisgendered female to be a witch who think that you have to be cisgender female to connect to the goddess or goddesses. It's certainly a perspective that I find harmful and deplorable, but you will still find that sometimes in some modern witchcraft conversations. And I'd love to know who you think is doing it right. Who do you think is embracing multiplicities of our understanding of gender today and 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 what other thoughts you might have around that wow um i want to say as an overall that i find that my non-binary and trans and gender fluid gender non-conforming siblings and cousins across spectrum of the craft are efforting to understand and do it differently and I think the concept of doing it right is a phrasing maybe to unpack a little bit too, because so what I will say, we can kind of pick up from here, but if we want to understand how to exist as witches outside of, not just outside of, but in an effort to dismantle colonial cis-centrism and heteronormativity and the perpetuation of gender essentialism and biological reductionism, in our craft, then we start looking towards other trans, non-binary, genderqueer, gender fluid, gender non-conforming witches. And we start looking to black, brown, and indigenous, two-spirit and queer and non-binary and trans practitioners of magic in the craft. And we start to follow the lead and we start to ask questions and support the work of, of our siblings. Um, and we start to listen because I don't think any of us are doing it right. I think many of us are starting to enter into a very earnest conversation that requires us to break down the learning, break down the grooming that we have internalized from the colonized practice of Wicca and the gender essentialism inherent in the modern movement and the modern resurgence of the craft. And then we have to look at how do we then resurrect traditional practices and how do we resurrect the witch while also dismantling those oppressive binary systems in the movement, then we have to start looking at how are we doing it in our lives? How are we doing it in our communities and our collectives? Um, so I think it's a bigger question. If you don't mind, if I interject for a moment, I mean, the two names I mentioned, and I, and I always bring up Z Budapest and Starhawk as kind of opposites in that mm -hmm. Z Budapest, even though, you know, some still hold her up to be this great leader of feminist witchcraft, and she deserves 
I think, credit for some really positive things she has done. And yet to this day, decades later, she still is extremely transphobic and she still does not want to acknowledge anybody other than cisgendered women as being part of the style of witchcraft that she does. Whereas on the other hand, Starhawk, who I think of as the other leader of feminist American witchcraft, has evolved over time and she has learned and she's grown and she's changed her language. And, you know, if you look at her book, Spiral Dance, her later editions of the book, she has new forwards where she says, hey, I've learned new things and I've grown and I now realize that my language was harmful and I am working to be more inclusive and that all people can be witches and, you know, people of all gender expressions and expressions of sexuality. And I don't think of her as perfect, but I think of her as someone who has evolved. And we're also talking about people who are of a different generation than me. And so to me, and and please correct me if you think that I'm wrong here, but I think of Starhawk as someone who gives me hope that at least people can change and learn and grow and, and become more expansive in the ways in which they're thinking about practitioners of witchcraft. Oh, I agree. And I think um, it's a topic that I kind of turn over in my mind a lot. Having access to information and having doors opened for us by individuals who have been appointed leadership, whether ill-appointed or not, whether they're problematic or continue to perpetuate harm or not, it's challenging, right? Because we are already talking about working within a system of faith that has been historically persecuted. And we're talking about reclaiming identities, the identity of which, which has who has cross-culturally been subjected to generations of violence and harm. And so any opportunity to have a door opened for us, I think we clamor towards. And then when we get there, we're like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> the person holding the door open is actually very harmful, but yet the information is good. And so how we begin to decolonize even our elders or our relationships rather with the teachings from generations before us and I do agree. I think that Starhawk is a remarkable ally. And I think that she's doing remarkable work as steward. And I think she's living as a witch. And there's very few people who I think can say that about themselves or have that said about them. And I think Starhawk is a steward of magic. And Z Budapest, of course, is, let's just call her what she is. She's the turf. And can you tell folks who might not be familiar with that acronym what that stands for, T-E-R-F? Yeah, it's a trans-exclusionary radical feminist. Now, mind you, there is a resurgence of radical feminists who are not TERFs, but Z Budapest had an interesting way of accessing magic and I think brought a lot of hope and a lot of faith to a lot of people. Unfortunately, in doing so, she perpetuated colonial harm because in order to raise up certain people, she had to create a craft that subjected many, many others to violence and exclusion. And I don't think that that's what the witch does. I think the witch is responsible for holding accountability, holding lines of accountability. And I think we're responsible for maintaining a natural order. 
And sometimes that looks like dismantling systems that have overstepped and breached their boundaries and, <laughs> and violated the boundaries of others. And when justice is called for, it's called for. But harming a further marginalized community for the purpose of lifting up another marginalized community is not justice. And it's not true witchcraft. I agree a hundred and thousand percent. (laughs) That's really important to be reminded of. That witchcraft really comes from people who are oppressed and persecuted and magic is made in the margins. And so to me, it just doesn't make any sense to use your witchcraft to then make other people feel endangered and make them feel excluded and make them feel unwelcome. It just is so antithetical to everything I understand magic to be. Same. <laughs> we have to give ourselves permission to to have these conversations in ourselves. And I am still thinking about like who's doing this. And I think we are. We have all of these magical platforms opening to us and opening for new and burgeoning witches to come home to themselves. And, you know, we have all these points of access, which I think is another point of controversy for the postmodern modern witch revival that we're currently experiencing is the accessibility of craft, the accessibility of magic, or at least the idea of witchcraft and the idea of witch, the symbol of witch. And, and I think where that's wonderful is that so many people are realizing that there's an opportunity for them to examine and to reconsider their perspectives and their belief systems and to uh, cast off bindings of convention if they need to do that or want to do that or seek to do that. And then I think that folks like us and folks like Brie Luna and folks like even the Catland Books crew who are bringing to light other opportunities for witches to explore themselves and their magic. I think it's a wonderful thing. And then we have to have these conversations together to figure out, like, how do we as people who lead community, how do we as people who people turn to, how do we begin to shift the narrative and shift our relationship on a daily with our craft and with with supremacy culture and with the spirit so that we can learn how to do things differently and um, being able and being willing to make invitation. I'm so grateful for this invitation to be on your program and just even talk a little bit about these things. You know, these are daily questions. These are daily conversations that we have to have with ourselves. And so I think when you ask like, who's doing it right, I think we have to be the ones who are seeking to do it better, who are seeking to do better, than those who have come before us so that we can continue to not just serve magic, but also to uh, be in service to one another. I couldn't agree more. And the idea of you not only having the apothecary that you have in Seattle, but also the fact that you are a teacher and that you are teaching I was going to say the next generation of witches, though I understand that you have people of all generations and ages Mm -hmm. as your students, but the next chapter of witches, how about that? The fact that they get to learn from you gives me so much hope. And I'd love to hear a little bit about 
the students who tend to gravitate towards your school and your classes are these folks who come from all different backgrounds and identities as well? I would imagine so, but I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, and I think it's so funny. I would call it our common age of magic. <laughs> you know, like we're definitely in an, a different age of magic rather than generation. It's it's, it's like the, the zeitgeist of the modern witch is intersections and reclaiming and reparations. And I think the Cunning Crow Apothecary and the School of Traditional Magic that I'm grateful to be teaching with and co-leading with some beautiful people call to us all kinds of folks, for sure. We tend to focus a lot of our work on those most affected and most made vulnerable by systems of oppression particularly systems of colonial cishet white supremacy. So we work a lot with non-binary, trans, queer folk. We work a lot with BIPOC folks. And we work a lot with sex workers. I myself am a former sex worker. I also am a former social worker. (laughs) And I currently have a license in acupuncture. And I run a metaphysical herb shop. So we kind of our clients, I think, mirror and our community mirrors our board of directors and our hopes for our work. And we try our best to provide a safe space or a safer space for folks. The temple is open to people during the weekday to come and pray and to just find community. And most of our classes are sliding scale. So we try to work within or try to work outside of a capitalistic model Um, while still trying to maintain (laughs) our space. Well, that's great. And I really hope someday that I can visit you in person because it sounds... Well, you should come to Seattle. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to. I love Seattle. And the idea of getting to really physically witness the incredible spiritual space that you are holding and creating really, really excites me. And I absolutely hope to get there in person one day soon. In the meantime, for listeners who want to learn more about you, your work, work, your classes, your healing sessions, your shop, where is the best way that they can find you? Instagram is great. So they can follow Cunning Crow Apothecary on Instagram. The website for the Cunning Crow Apothecary is www.cunningcrowapothecary.com. My school of traditional magic, the website is traditionalmagic.com. I'm also revamping my online program, so that should be available over the winter. That's your distance learning witch school, correct? Yeah, so it's mostly foundations. I tend to focus my practice on elemental witchcraft, traditional witchcraft being an umbrella term, as you know, for traditionless traditions, um, the great diaspora of witch. So I try to keep things pretty earth-centric, elemental-centric, so people can find their own voices without too much cultural overlay on my part. And my colleague, my friend, my dear sibling, Kiki Robinson and I host every Monday a free altar service for the radical resistance of supremacy for those made most vulnerable by systems of colonial cishet white supremacy. And so people can check that out at livingaltar.com or also by following us on Instagram at Living Altar. And yeah, the services are free for those for whom it's intended. And we also ask for folks who are cis and het and white 
to donate financially as a reparation so that we can serve our community. And we also give the majority of funds left over from the altar services towards reparations via Real Rent Duwamish to pay rent to the Duwamish and Coast Salish folks whose land we occupy here in, in Seattle. Wow, that's so much good work that you're doing. You are such a source of inspiration. I really hope you'll come back on the show because there's so much more I want to discuss with you. But until then, I'm so, so grateful that you were here. Thank you so much, Ilva Mara, for taking the time and letting me learn so much from all of the beautiful work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. It's, it's been a delight and I would love to come back on anytime. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Ilva Mara Rejeshevsky for joining me and for doing such important, inspiring, and illuminating work. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop me an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on the Witch Wire. The Witch Wave is produced and recorded by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was edited by Rachel Jacobs. Thank you, Rachel, and myself. Our theme music is by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman and Chiquita Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website, witchwavepodcast.com. And please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us lots of sparkly stars. It makes a big difference and helps other people find us. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at witchwavepod. And check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. And please, please, please consider pre-ordering my book, Waking the Witch. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.